Well, hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm in Maynooth, is that the right way of saying it? And I'm staying in a seminary, is that the right way of saying it? I think that is. And I'm in the bishop's bedroom. The question is, who's the fucking bishop? <laughs> I don't know, I wish I could answer. Today's bishop is, and I'm going to make my best attempt at Italianizing the pronunciation of your last name, Maria Ramaggiore. Thank you. Now, Maria, as her accent will shortly disclose, is a native of Ireland who has never actually been further than about 50 kilometers east of Dublin. Never beyond the pale. <laughs> never beyond the pale. No, you're a recent arrival here, but somebody who's been an expert about Irish cinema and popular culture, along with other topics, for quite a while. And I wondered if what we could do before we go back, 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 as they say in baseball, to talk more about your career, is discuss what you're working on right now, a lot of which is actually curriculum development, faculty development, and so on, here in your new job in the Republic of Ireland. That is correct, and thank you for inviting me to um, join your podcast series. I'm flattered and delighted. I joined the faculty at NUI Maynooth, and that stands for National University of Ireland at Maynooth. It's a sort of, I don't know if you would call it a consortium, but all of the universities um, sort of fall under that. Oh, do they? Umbrella. Everything yeah. is in All the universities UI. are public, in a sense, from okay. Trinity, UCD, NUI Maynooth, Cork, all of But you're the only one that says NUI. That's true, and I think that's because Maynooth was not officially chartered under that dispensation until 1997. Right. So the right. others had these right. previous, so you have University College Cork. That is actually National University of Ireland at Cork. Right, now. right, right. So right, these right. are all... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a federation that came exactly. to be late in life. Exactly. The whole it's system, gathered. and as the latest arrival within the system, you're the only one likeliest to... Use the time. Follow the rules. Got it. Yes. Follow the rules and be a good kid. Yes. So we. Um, so I came here just this January, about five months ago, um, to um, head the Media Studies Center here, which is called a center, but has really, from its um, initial establishment in about two thousand and three, two thousand and four, um, has really functioned as a department. studies and currently a master's degree in radio and film, excuse me, radio and television production. And one of the things I'm hoping to develop is a more research-led and research-oriented MA program um, in media cultures. And that would be something hopefully broad enough to encompass the very diverse interests of the faculty I've just joined offer something new. We, a me, media studies, um, per se, is really not a common uh, cluster department center um, in Ireland. There are film and television and radio studies programs, um, but media studies, we're, we're really one of the very few, and I'm hoping we can um, become sort of the, the one everyone knows about in Ireland. Very special, yeah. Now, can I make a plea as an outsider that radio not lose its institutional personality in the face of ludicrous things like digital 
Well, that's a really great point that you make because I'll be honest, when I first arrived um, and I looked at the curriculum, I wondered about radio. And fortunately, yeah. I have colleagues who will be jump up and down and be very difficult. direct. No, I mean they will educate me, and that's what and that's what I need. You know, you don't come to some place and start mm. running things. I mean, that's been the biggest challenge mm. for me personally mm -hmm. of yeah. this shift is running, and I'm using scare quotes here, mm, a mm. place that I haven't been teaching in for many, many years. So you really don't know all there is to know. You have to, you have to listen a lot. So my colleagues made it very clear that radio, in particular in Ireland, is not at all a marginal or marginalized or declining um, media form. It's extremely important, um, and it will, so it will still, we're, we're in fact thinking more with radio in terms of history and critical studies. Oh, wonderful. Simply the production. Because that's, that's where internationally there remains a lack. There, as you know, there is a journal of radio studies, and it does get in the title of a few other things, like historical journal of radio, television, and film. But really it's the poor cousin always, other than in things like audiology and technological issues of engineering. Sorry, I need to sound like it. I'm on a rant. Anyway, no, point no, is, no, I'm glad that yeah. radio is not going to die. I think it's also very interesting that you've adopted this listening approach. How often have we seen in our careers deans in particular, but also chancellors or presidents of universities arrive and say they're going to do that, but not do it at all? Because their whole brief is, I want, I'm on a career trajectory upwards in administration, and that means slash and burn. It means spend less and do more. And, and, and I think, right, and I think often bring, bring with you an agenda to accomplish within a couple of years' time so that you're moving on to the next post. Before so the I, disaster hits. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, you have something uh, on the CV yeah. as yeah. a major restructuring or something that you did. You know, and I, I have to say, I, maybe it's not, not um, uh, I don't know what the right word is, flattering to admit it. I, you know, I'm sort of old school in a way. I was at the same institution for a very long period of time. I didn't come here because I have some idea about I'm going to get there and I'm going to go there and that job is the one for me. I thought this program sounded really interesting. Um, I thought there were things I could learn here. Um, I think also, and you've had this experience too, of coming to a place where you're in charge of things. There's a, it's very difficult to um, suppress the feeling that you're supposed to know everything immediately and mm -hmm. you're the one in charge and people are looking to you and, and in, in some cases and in this program really they they were looking for leadership and they, that, that term is so problematic these days we have all of these leadership development programs that are in a thinly disguised fascism frankly but right. I do I have a more method, uh, more medical description of them which is bath on a spoon <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like that better. That's yeah. The, the term fascism means nothing anymore. It's thinly so disguised barf on a spoon. Thinly disguised barf on a spoon actually has some purchase. Is that what you're talking about with that? But I, I do think it's a very small department. In one of the you know so the the idea of um, finding some leverage. You know, this is a faculty who does incredibly interesting research. Amazing. A lot of it. Yeah. Great teaching, yeah. and nobody knows about them. And that's not the most important thing in the world. But they deserve. Little bit more in terms of resources, in terms of attention, and, and, and you can give political life. representation within the institution and outside right. it, but especially right. within. Yeah, right. no, that's great, and I, 
I honour and admire that. That was what I tried to do. Unlike you, I didn't have a core group of faculty, very distinguished, who were 100% in the thing. I had a group of very good faculty, but like 50 or 60 people who would teach a course a year or a course every two years that was relevant and a curriculum that lacked as well as benefited from a lack of focus because it was really about the kindness of strangers. Right. And what we did was to try to retain the best of that but also recruit lots of people and generate a curriculum that was effective. But in any event, this unfortunately isn't about me, though most things I discuss I try to turn into being about me. Am I allowed to laugh out loud on <laughs> no, this, or will you, will you edit those out? No, I don't edit. edit. I don't edit. Okay. All right. I do, so the well, I do. Cup rattling that's and all the fine. The phone ringing. Out my nose and... All those things okay. are part of ambient sound. As you'll discover when you make your way fully through the radio production curriculum, these things are crucial. You know, the cough and snort cocaine buttons. <laughs> but in all seriousness, what. Uh, all I do is add a photo, maybe of you, maybe one of your book covers. And other than that, whatever happens, happens. And I like that. So, in terms of um, your work, I thought we might chat about what you've done recently. Because obviously, in terms of research, this is not going to be the, the easiest year of your life. Um, because of all the other stuff. But maybe if you could tell us what's brewing, or what's coming up next. And then we could go back a little bit. Would that be all right? start with the project that I'm concluding, which is the book on gerrymandering. And so that would be the project I've been working on the longest. I would say it probably began in around 2007 or so. I'm thinking I'm going into my seventh year, and it's rather daunting to, to recognize that. But I am in final revisions for the press. So the book should be out later this year or early next year, which is nice because that is the For what it's worth. And this is the Stanley Kubrick film, yes. Barry Lyndon. Yes, and the background around Barry Lyndon and his life. So there is a little discussion of that. It's primarily focused on, on the film. And initially, my thought about why that film made sense for me to spend all of this time on, why anyone would spend enough time to write a book on a single film anymore, you do have to wonder. Um, you can question my sanity on that point. Um, I was interested in its Irish resonances, and um, I think possibly, maybe a former colleague of yours, Mark Cassini, mm -hmm. is he by the way you? He um, is still. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, wrote probably what still, and I say this in my book, some of the strongest um, work on Barry Lyndon in relation to the novel and to sort of Irishness, representations of Irishness. He wrote a couple of things in the late 70s. But it has not really been considered in that frame. And so I sort of came back to it thinking, well, I'm you know, an American living in the States. I visit Ireland to do research. This is a film that has a lot of transnational um, issues at stake. You know, Thackeray was British, but was in fact born in Calcutta and raised there until he was 86 years old. Um, and he went back to England to school. Kubrick was an American living in the UK and, and sort of thought that I could do the kind of research I needed for a project 
that rather than the kind of research you can get here. The work you can do when you're living somewhere and you are actually um, deeply, deeply accessing some things. At any rate, that has not really turned out to be the primary focus of, of the book. That has now turned into questions of temporality and time. So that is the larger rubric. Now, a what I guess I would call the subordinated point is that the, the Irish issues and the questions of um, colonialism, post-coloniality, and temporality, mm -hmm. and the arguments that are often made in the case of Ireland about there being a peculiar temporality. This goes back to even some of the work we've looked at here today. We were talking about Luke Gibbons yeah. earlier, and very much uh, the superimposition of post-modernity onto tradition without having gone through modernity. Right. Something you you get in a lot of work on Latin America too, actually, but definitely Ireland. And mm -hmm. Joyce is the figure who gives you modernism and maybe postmodernism without there being modernity, for instance, right? Yeah. One of the arguments yeah. people will make. Yeah, exactly. So that, that, that project is coming to a conclusion very shortly, in a couple of weeks, so that um, the manuscript back to you will we'll see how that goes. And who's the they? Um, it's Bloomsbury Academic. Mm -hmm. um, used to be Continuum. One point in some of the contract it was Continuum, and now they went back to Bloomsbury. Mm -hmm. um, and they have a really interesting film list, so I'm, I'm happy. In fact, I have benefited from. The, you, you mentioned it being a tough year for research, and this this book has been a little bit delayed because of me. But I think it's all to my um, it. It benefits me because every time I see another book coming out from Bloomsbury, I think that looks fantastic. So I'm now joining a very illustrious list. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> so, wonderful. And moving on to another tack or another track, some might say that it's an odd film in the context of Kubrick's oeuvre, mm -hmm. that because of precisely of its temporality, not meaning timing, but meaning historical nature. Well, and, I, and so I talk about that. In fact, the film has been treated to all sorts of discourses of time. Mm -hmm. It was too long. Right? Mm. Its timing mm. and pace were mm. too slow. Mm. It took too long to make. These are all kind mm. of you know, um, charges leveled against the film. It didn't fit in the 1970s. It meant Kubrick was behind the times. It was a stuffy costume drama when nobody wanted to see that anymore. Um, it goes on and on. That you know, average shot length of the film. Now, this isn't something that somebody else would have talked about, but I that I look at, you know, is so much longer than even films like Chinatown, you know, sort of contemporary mm. films that might have been mm. thought of as art cinema. Um, but um, and even um, I'm pretty sure it's Thomas Alsace who talks about. Kubrick having almost a sort of proleptic um, sense of that, that, that Barry Lyndon, in fact, belongs with the kinds of films that were made in the 80s, the sort of heritage cycle of films in Britain. And so he was, in fact, ahead of his time with making Barry Lyndon. So that was, I mean, I started seeing all of this stuff and thinking, why, um, why is there that? One of the central questions for me that hasn't been raised is that I, you know, I've done all the research I possibly can, all the research I'm going to do since the book is going in, but no one 
talks about Barry Lyndon in relation to Vietnam. Mm. You know, a film that really that came out that was being made in 1973 through 75. It came out in 1975. It's about a global colonial war. Mm. Um, it's about a person who unwillingly um, goes to war, um, mm. deserts. Um, so it's it really that was curious to me. Um, it's not seen generally as one of Kubrick's war films, like Hands of Fire or um, Crimson Jacket. Um, and so there are ways where, going back to your question about is it anomalous in his body of work, um, I don't think so at all. I think mm -hmm. all of this, and, and this wouldn't be my, my, it isn't my preferred or my primary argument in the book that we should recognize Barry Lyndon as not only not a novelist, but the most typical Kubrick film or something mm. like that. That's not where I'm trying to go. But in terms of um, what it does with, um, formally what it does with mm. time, I, I think it's um, doing many of the same things as 2001. Hmm. What it's doing with um, questions of violence and um, war, of House of Glory and Full Metal Jacket. Um, the... I. I start the, the introduction. I start with uh, um, speaking of radio, going back to radio, talking about an interview that um, David Chase, who was the creator of The Sopranos, um, gave on NPR last year. National Public Radio, which NPR is like the BBC or CBC of yeah. the US. Yeah, and um, he was giving a ten films you have to see, and Barry Lyndon was on was on his list. And the interviewer said, "Well, you've." Picked, um, you know, films by famous directors, but they're not always their best known work. And let's talk about this. And he specifically talked about Barry Lyndon and how he really liked the way um, the violence was so suppressed within mm. the, the appearance of civilization that's that's being presented in the film. I think he uses the term the um, handkerchief up your sleeve. And the interviewer, um, Stephen Skeet, the NPR interviewer says to him, well, you know, what's, it, it, what's interesting is your own work, The Sopranos, also has this sense of there's a code, um, and they, they sort of talk about it as a code among sociopaths. You know, there are these rules that you're supposed to follow, but at the bottom of it is, is pure insanity, and that really... It's called the United States, actually. <laughs> so, oh, sorry, carry on. Well, I tried to, to sort of say, I mean, th that resonated very much for me. Yeah, Why yeah. I was interested in Barry Lyndon was the way that the British Empire mm -hmm. and an Irish colonial presence within mm -hmm. it, and again, going back to, I don't think that mm -hmm. element in the film is, is really mm -hmm. um, brought forth enough, um, how it is, uh, you know, this, this visually beautiful environment, and that's what everybody has talked about in yes. the film, is the sort of space and the look of the film, and that's why I think that you're talking about temporalities is, is, is useful, but that um, the beauty of it somehow means there isn't brutality there, like somehow mm. people aren't really seeing yeah. what I'm seeing, which is exactly that question of, you know, this mm. code among mm. sociopaths that in fact is the definition of culture. I mean, that's yeah. what I think Kubrick is, is saying on a political level. So it's, it's almost a Girardian text in that way. You know, it makes me think about the fact that we're dealing with this awful moment right now that, of course, is not a moment. It's part of history, an ongoing history of the kidnapping of 200 young women in Nigeria and their sale. And the three countries that are racing in to save them are, guess what, United States, France, and Britain. Think about the number of young women 
but they were responsible, most of all, obviously, Britain and France, for seizing, kidnapping, and selling, and how many young women are still sold in those countries, right. and how much justification there is again and again and again for imperialism and colonialism based on civilizing countries to save young women. Exactly. It's just it's extraordinary exactly. how much we see of this and the parallels across these places, isn't it? Well, and that's so much happening in, you know, living in the United States during all of the, you know, insanity, the post 9-11 mm. wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the strange way that in terms of issues mm -hmm. of feminism, that, yeah. you know, would be appropriated, sort of, well, we need to go to war um, in Iraq so that, you know, Muslim women can drive or something. I mean, just these these bizarre formulations. Madness. Again, yeah. that sort of yeah. cultural um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, trump card. Yeah, we're saving them, which is, you know yes. they've been doing for exactly. centuries. Okay, that's very very interesting, and especially I think in the context of the fact that by that moment of seventy three to seventy five, the costume drama on television is becoming a major source of money. BBC through sales to PBS public broadcasting in the US and the costume drama in the United States is far from run out of town it's actually immensely popular but just in a slightly different form from the one that the critics you're talking about are describing well and when you go to television I mean I think this is another reason why even diehard fans of Kubrick's I mean I like to just talk about films it doesn't have to be in class it doesn't have mm. to be and so I know a lot of people who are absolutely in love with him and his work, and they wouldn't know they wouldn't have known the film. I'd be saying I'm working on this, and they'd go, "Which one? Huh? What?" And they hadn't seen it. Now these wouldn't, you know, they weren't necessarily scholars, but they were diehard yeah, they, fans who'd go out and buy every box set and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think it's it's a it's a feminized film mm. in relation to the rest of his work because mm. of that question of genre and the issue of. Costume dramas are are now what we would say chick flicks, right? That mm. the term, but also belong on television. They're not, you know, their um, mini series would have been the thing in the seventies, yeah. right? So yeah. there are all these ways that it's oh, upstairs, hitting. downstairs, the first Churchills, exactly. the palaces, the the Forsyth Saga right. was probably the first really big Did one. You say in rich the man, US. poor man. There was that one too. Yes, well, that's a later. that's really a mini series. Isn't it? And that's also made from contemporary novel, whereas the others are old. The others, I, I think, Rich Man Poor Man is made from a novel written in the seventies. Oh, I'm sure. Ah, uh, yes. Whereas yes, yes. the Palaces is Trollope, the Foresight Saga is Gallsworthy, the First Churchills is an historical resurrection, as it were. But in any, I mean, I, I say that without having. Absolute certainty, but in any no, event, you're right. you're I think right it is a, it is the moment when these things have really taken off and have become core components factored into production budgets. U.S. white U.S. people will love watching this. In any event, wow. Well, that sounds like a really interesting book, and I look forward to to seeing it very very much when it comes out. Now, perhaps what we could do, there are several themes in your work that are that are important. One is certainly Ireland. Um, another is queerness. Um, there are others too, but perhaps we could talk about the Irish stuff as a bundle. Could we do that? Sure. And then talk about the queer sure. stuff? So and I realise there's back. overlap. Yeah, I realise so, there's overlap. So you want Would you like some more tea, by the way? Um, if you're going to have some, I will. 
I am. We can even have, we can share. We can even have a new bag. I'd say that's the right thing to do. I think it is. There's your link. Um, yes, so. So in terms of the Irish work, you know, I, um, I really was probably drawn to the Irish Keep going while film. I'm yeah. Um, like a lot of people, when The Crying Game came out, so I came to it late, it wasn't something that I worked on. My dissertation was on um, women experimental filmmakers. Um, Barbara Hammer, Maya Darren, and Yvonne Rayner. So I came out of that, and that was at a time in the early 90s before you actually could access a lot of experimental cinema. It wasn't on VHS tapes, which we still had then. It wasn't on DVD. It hadn't been digitized. And it was becoming difficult for me to see where I was going to go looking at experimental film just in terms of access to the materials. At any rate, I saw The Crying Game and I thought, well, this is really interesting. What the hell is going on? Well, I would have not expected to see um, a film with these themes coming out of Ireland. Now, that was my ignorance at the time, but that was because I didn't know, um, you know sort of what had been happening in Ireland in the 70s and the 80s in terms of cinema and, you know, let's say a sophistication that I, in my American neo-colonial mindset, might not have been able to to um, to attribute to Irish representation. So um, I started working on that film, and from there, I guess, probably developed the the, the first book that I wrote, which I think is kind of very strange, and I don't know that too many people will have read it, and it's well, very Well, we can say that about narrow. all our books, <laughs> Well, oh, yeah, sorry, with the exception, actually, one of yours, a lot of people have read we'll Talk about that in a bit. Yeah, so this would be the um, Irish and African-American cinema since 1980, talking about um, identif proposed identification across race and national identity mm -hmm. um, in Irish cinema and in um, African-American cinema as two not quite national cinemas that saw themselves in that way, or at mm. least that's what I argue, mm. um, after 1980, sort mm -hmm. of. Um, my interest there, and I think an interest that probably threads throughout all of my work, is you know politics underlying film representation, and that mm -hmm. comes in a variety of forms, but um, even the, you know, the, the women's experimental cinema, the sort of the politics of representation of gender sexuality, mm. um, and that that sort of um, came through into that into that work, but yeah, it was a. I think of it; it's an odd. It was an odd and very, um, very focused and tightly, tightly focused. But we think of, we were mentioning Luke Gibbons twice yeah. before. Yeah. He was someone who a long time ago talked about the misfortune of so much bigotry against African Americans by Irish Americans historically, given the points of continuity and experience that might have forged alliances. Right, right, exactly right. And that is the, the American the American history of, of immigration. There's a really interesting um, there's a really interesting moment in did you ever see Riverdance? Not when I could ever help it. <laughs> Michael Flatley Flatley was, Michael Flatley was the one. Well my sister and I went to Riverdance in Chicago. 
And I have to say it was a bit of an, a, a nostalgic and sentimental, how could it not be, moment. Our, our mother had maybe had passed away maybe a couple of years earlier, and she greatly prided her Irish roots. Um, she had probably a grandparent, a couple of grandparents who, who emigrated, but this, that was really important to her. And so, you know, we saw Riverdance and we, our, the tears were flowing. Yeah. We were all, it was all, it was very Wonderful. enjoyable. But there's a really interesting dance-off between African-American dancers and Irish dancers um, who have just landed. So they're the new, the new guys on the block. And so I started to watch that and what that what that interaction meant in you know in light of what you've just been saying about the research that's been done. I think I want to say Noel Ignatiev wrote a was the one who wrote the book um, How the Irish Became White. So yeah. all of that um, class and racial politics that surrounded um, all of these encounters in, in big American cities, particularly for black and so that is interesting to me. And again, I think that goes back to my, you know, obviously I have this, um, you know, the sentimental heritage, but, I, you know, my grandparents were Italian immigrants. Um, it, it's, it's interesting to see the number of people, including black people, in L.A., which doesn't have a huge, long-standing Irish-American population who celebrates St. Patrick's Day. It's enormously popular there. And it's one of these things that it's not a signifier without a reference. But it's a very odd reference. It's a very odd reference. Well, I don't know if you saw, there was a, um, have you seen the Leprechaun in the Hood um, no. film? You probably wouldn't have seen it. But yeah, there's a, there is a, um, there Your is team a out. body. Thank you, sir, Bishop. You shouldn't have to, to wait on someone from Sherbrooke. Yeah. The bishopric, I think, is that what it's called? That's what I occupy. That's the accuracy of the bishop. <laughs> So, um, the leprechaun in the hood, there was some one other piece I wanted to talk about. Oh, um, just, I was traveling this year on St. Patrick's Day with a friend from Ireland to Seattle to go to SCMA. Society, Society for Cinema and Media Studies. And we were in Chicago waiting to change planes, and we were in the bar having dinner, and there were two African-American women there. Who were Covered just about green, green. Yeah, yeah, fingernails. I mean, it was just yeah. amazing to them. And so I said, you know, it's funny. I said, we've just come from Ireland. We're traveling from there on St. Patrick's Day. And when my friend um, started talking to them too, you know, they were saying, you know, she has an accent I and everything. I love your accent. Yeah. yeah. Well, they were headed to to Las Vegas to gamble, and I said, I think we've given you the luck of the Irish today. You know, they were they were kind of delighted. So it is embraced by um, just about everyone. United States, yeah. and it's yeah. quite, it is remarkable, mm -hmm. it's, not, it, I, it's not bizarre, but it is remarkable that you have, you know, anyone can can wear Kissing on Irish on St. Patrick's Day, mm -hmm. it's this fungible, flexible, um, in some ways, um, patronized identity, right, it's and everybody's happy, drinking, leprechauns. Call you out if you don't wear something green. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in a friendly way. And then, of course, there are the issues like whether or not the people in charge of the St. Patrick's Day March in New York will accept a queer float. Yeah. Well, the, um, you know, the Taoiseach Andy Kenny, um, who is, the, I guess, the equivalent of the prime minister here, 
this year went to the New York parade and said, well, this is the reason why I'm going. And he's Fine Gael, which would sort of be like, you know, when you write, um, Louis, you know, this is, a, this is about Irish identity. And there was an Italian-American named Rudy Giuliani who liked to dress up as a girl, but also thought it was about Italian, not sexual identity, even though he thought as an Italian-American with a very interesting personal history and familial history, uh, it was kosher, so to speak, for him to participate. Yeah, I don't think that anyone has really scratched the surface of those interactions or intersections between ethnicity and sexuality, because they're just... And again, from, I, I think from um, the perspective of having grown, grown up Italian-American, you know, the Tony Manero, my dad had an Italian stallion t-shirt at one point. I mean, yeah, oh yeah. Um, and, you know, you go to Italy and I'm like, well, all these men are gay. What are they talking about? Right. I mean, the actual performance. Well, it's all that oil they put in their hair that's the giveaway, <laughs> I find. All that American men, all Italian men, plus all, all, you know, all British men. So it's a miracle that these countries... Historically, we've been able to repopulate. Well, no wonder they have such low birth. Anymore. Well, they have such low birth rates because men just yeah. don't want to be with women sexually. Yeah. We, I mean, very few people know this, but I think the pod has unleashed the truth <laughs> on its massive right. listenership right yeah. here and now in the bishop's house. Yeah, yeah. men don't like women sexually. Not at all. I'm beginning to think that's, that's actually the norm rather than the exception. Yeah, I'm doing in that that there, there's a paper that I'm working on mm -hmm. now on um, the child in Spanish horror films that is I'm linking to um, you know the, the politics of the birth rate and oh, immigration in Spain that sort of it, the figure of the child is nothing new it's nothing new in Spanish um, um, thriller and horror films it goes back to the, the 70s and um, Spirit of the Beehive and um, Priya Cuervos, the um, Carlos Sauer film. So it, it's not that this is something new, but I'm trying to talk about what these directors are saying about the post-Franco era using the child figure, which mm. is recognizable as a figure that was used in the post-Franco, or in the Franco era, excuse me, cinema. So why are they still looking? I mean, it's obviously about, um, Marcia Kinder talked about the child as sort of stunted, Stunted mm -hmm. development, and I'm sort of mm -hmm. saying, yeah, there's a way that they're revisiting this, but it's uncanny because you're seeing films set in a time that is not the time of Franco, but um, you still have these children figures. So temporality came up for me as well in that in that work. But but the idea that um, the child is this point of contention because um, Spain, and in another case, another film from Uruguay, I mean, the quote native birth rates. Are flat and the population growth is coming from immigration, and this is something that's becoming more of a question all over the place. Obviously, in the United States, it's a very famous discourse. White people should have more babies because you know they will not be the majority. Well, so, it's interesting too that it's often profoundly Catholic countries from mm -hmm. the United States where Catholicism, because it's often separated out from Christianity in the U.S. unlike other places, is still the most popular religion. And also popular amongst African Americans, despite their mythology. It's in these countries that we have flat birth rates often. Italy, Ireland, increasingly. Spain. Spain. Mm -hmm. 
getting back to the crying game, for those who haven't seen it, perhaps you could just tell us what, or even, and for those who have, perhaps you could give us your take on it in the way you did with Barry Lyndon. So I dated myself by talking about the crying game, which what came out, I think, 1992 or three. I think two, but yeah. Time ago, I'm losing it. Um, so the film is ostensibly about um, IRA politics, Irish Republican Army politics, um, and that would relate to partition, what some would call the partition of Ireland into Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland, and the desire um, for what Republicans would have called unification, reunification. Um, and so it's about terrorism, and it, however, turns on a sexual identity story as well. With an African-American actor. With an African-American actor. American um, actor, well, Forrest Whitaker, he's playing mm. a black British soldier yeah. who is, I think, from Antigua, or that's what his heritage is, that's what it's associated with. So there is a post-colonial um, uh, frame of reference there. And um, the what what's interesting to me about that film is it's it's posing the question about whether or not sexual identity is innate, because I know I know that that's been a very popular political position for for understandable reasons in um, queer politics of late or gay and lesbian politics perhaps I should say of late that if you say someone can't help it then discrimination cannot be understood. Let's find the gay gene and then no more can we be accused of sinning. Exactly. Um, I, you know, and I'm not, I don't have a problem with, with, with people making that political argument. I don't really believe it. <laughs> I think there's a lot more involved, um, and I think there are more fluid possibilities. So, I mean, I identify as bisexual. I have since a very early age, as we know um, from the uh, FIVA that we, that we co-participated um, in, there are a lot of different angles and takes and definitions of what that means, but I, uh, uh, defining bisexuality, but I, um, I've been startled um, for many, many years now at the questions that are raised by gay and lesbian people about whether or not bisexuality can really actually exist. Hugh Toby showing a little less gray-haired cleavage. <laughs> I don't know why. I suddenly looked down and thought, ooh, if Sarah were here, she'd do up a button or two. You know, Whatever you need to. No, but we're back in the 70s disco Italian standard <laughs> thing. And that's, that's probably what that's Conduct probably unbecoming. Like. But in any event, yeah. yes, yeah. So I, um, it also honestly, I've had that, you know, you think you've been talking about a little bit yeah. about stereotypes today. Yeah. About sort of coming to Ireland and thinking, wow, it really is like this. And I, I'm, I'm a little surprised. Um, but I have been so many times, you know, well, we all know that bisexual is what people say they are when they're on their way to coming out. To be, I mean, seriously, yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, that's stuff from the 70s. There was some, somebody mm -hmm. on Facebook saying this the other day, you know, and I sort of said, no, some bisexuals really aren't, like, on their way anywhere, you know? Just here. They're stuck. Poor, poor darlings. Exactly, exactly. So I thought, you know, so a character in The Crying Game um, uh, becomes quite fond of the, the, one of the, the jailers, I guess you would put it, um, the minders of the 
his captured black British soldier becomes quite fond of him when the black British soldier must be killed. Um, really, you know, there's an, there's a, an affection there and um, he goes to find the soldier's lover after the soldier dies and the lover is not a straight female. Um, um, and, and so the, the sort of, there's all sorts of interesting ways that desire is, is sort of portable in that film. So the, the, the desire between the two men, the, the, the captor and the captive. He holds his penis when he needs to urinate yes. fairly early on. Exactly. And yeah, he's because been in, he's tied up, right. And the Forrest Whitaker character has been entrapped by a woman to exactly. a terrorist in inverted commas. Yes, yes. So sexuality is sort of it's all, all over, over the, place. the place. Yeah, mm. dripping with it. Oh, love it. <laughs> I'll drink to that. Yeah. Another little cup of tea. So the, you know, so, you know, I would argue that the first and perhaps most important um, sexual and erotic cathepsis is between the two men. Um, and that it's sort of transferred onto the third party, the woman, who turns out not to be a woman after all. And a lot of people argued that the, that the, the use of the woman um, IRA um, person as the bait and that she, the way she's sort of treated um, by the end of the film is sort of, it may be misogynistic. I'm, I'm not sure I fully agree with that, but I, I understand there's, there's an interesting real woman fake woman discourse going on in yeah, the film sure, too, sure. where the, the um, uh, transgender character is extremely sympathetic, whereas the, the female IRA character is not. So on that level, sure, there's some issues there. We also have three people who come out of this as world famous and go on to glittering other careers. Uh, we've mentioned one of them, Forrest Whitaker, mm -hmm. but there are two others, namely the other male lead male figure? Stephen Ray. Stephen Ray. An actor from um, Northern Ireland, um, Derry, I believe, who had done a lot of theater um, and appears after The Crying Game, in some film, after The Crying Game, in a number of Neil Jordan films. They have a sort of, you know, Scorsese De Niro, or, you know, you mm -hmm. see a number of, of films where they, they work together after that. Perhaps the, the maybe the best known one would be well, Interview with the Vampire, Michael Collins, those mm. films that Stephen Ray has done. That, that he's done. And, and of course, Jordan becomes a major figure. I mean, was important before, yes. but becomes a really major international yeah. figure. Yeah, and I, I, he, he's, he, I, so I, I wrote a book on Neil Jordan, um, uh, right. which is a kind of auteur study and looking at his, um, his works in the frame of the Gothic, which would be a very Irish, venerable Irish tradition. I try to talk about it as doing something, for lack of a better word, and is the word I, I use, sort of postmodern Gothic. There are some ways that it's not, it's departing from the traditional Gothic, is what I'm arguing about, mm -hmm. about his work. But he um, had done really interesting films before The Crying Game, which is not, not known. So Mona Lisa is one of the mm. most um, interesting crime noir films, I think, made in the 80s. Bob, Bob Hoskins, Hoskins just died. just passed away. Yeah. Was just amazing in that. Described film. everywhere as a cockney, but in fact from Norfolk. Yeah, yeah. And that might be more important to you than to me, because I wouldn't know the local. I mean, I know the difference between cockney and Norfolk, but beyond that, there might be. It might be of interest to some, but not to you. <laughs> right. So, but 
the nuances, these, I would be too ignorant. These point is, these people have pasts, but they also go on to very distinguished and notable futures. Um, now, I, this is where I need to ask you. Yeah. It's 3.34. Can we do 10 more minutes? Yeah. Is that that's okay? Because yeah. I'd love to move on to the bisexuality oh, yeah. stuff. And... That you've done, mm -hmm. and also talk a wee bit about your co-authored very successful textbook, because that's a form of writing that people don't talk about terribly much, but of course is immensely efficacious and significant if done well. So let's talk about the bisexuality, queer sexuality material, because it fits in well with the crying game, even though we haven't had a lot of time to talk about Neil Jordan. You've done so much that it's difficult to capture it all. Time allocated, but let's talk about this issue of bisexuality in culture, particularly screen culture. Yeah, and as I say, it's 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 work that comes from you know obviously a personal place, but I think mm. as we've been talking about, all of this stuff does. I can mm. find reasons for you know why Irish cinema drew me in further than just um, the Neil Jordan work. Ethnicity, even though I don't specifically, you know, write on Italian or Italian American ethnicity, I know that that's that's informed what I mm. do. So I, you know, I began to really. Um, I think one of my tendencies is to sort of say, what is something that no one is talking about, and why aren't they mm. talking about it? Mm -hmm. So very limited the examples that that wasn't mm. the case with the crying game. A lot of people were talking about that, but Irish cinema more largely was not really well discussed. At and it really seemed to me in gay and lesbian studies, queer theory, which was, you know, developing in the 80s and the 90s, that there was not a lot on bisexual theory. There were mm. coming out um, mm -hmm. narratives and, um, you know, kind of, yeah, personal narratives, all of which were, were really great. But no one was really theorizing what I would say as now tritely would be known as sort of, you know, both and, not either or, what um, mm. what possibilities are afforded by not, not have, you know, not limiting, I mean, we have two arguably genders, and now we know we have many more genders, but in the, the, the structures of heteronormativity, we have two genders and two monosexualities, right, competing. In other words, either you like the opposite or you like the same. Um, and I thought that was a rather limiting framework and to, to sort of um, argue for um, the existence of a different, a different perspective or a different vision I thought was important. So I co-edited this book with um, Donald E. Hall. Um, not the poet Donald Hall, but the scholar Donald E. Hall, um, who's also written more on beyond that book. And I think it's a, a useful, um, you know, a useful intervention. In fact, there's only been one other book that just came out recently called The B Word last year. Um, the B Word, great the B -word, title. Yeah, it is, it is. <laughs> written on bisexuality in film and television. And I, I think, um, I think there's a lot more work to be done. I, you know, in many ways I'd like to, I'd like to do more there too, but I end up getting drawn projects and going with this one and, mm. and that. Well, that's so, the trouble with these bisexuals, they can't focus. Exactly, and you can't <laughs> trust them. I'm always on the fence. Wish, Yeah, I never can't make a decision. I want it all. 
um, yeah. So um, that I'm trying to, to think of the most recent thing I've done. Didn't here. you write an encyclopedia entry or a dictionary entry I thing recently? Did for I think it's the Oxford Online um, Encyclopedia. I think I did queer studies and So where does bisexuality sit with queer theory? Queer theory in many ways enables um, bisexual theory because the formulation of queer, you know, explodes all of those binaries that need to be exploded. But the, so that's the promise of queer theory. Um, the reality of queer theory to me is that it has not yet um, been able to fully account for the idea of the queer, because I think the queer exists in all sorts of um, possible permutations and combinations. And I think it has been, um, it's sort of been tamed a little bit, I think, in maybe by academia or in academia. And it's, you know, it's now a great selling point on CV and I think it's rightly so. People need to who are who are um, studying sexuality in that way should be teaching and should have have positions at um, at the university level. But I think of you know queer as constantly um, interventionist and oppositional. I guess I still believe in those terms in the mm -hmm. post become um, that there are um, you know so. Marriage equality, you know, yes, I think it's a great thing, but it's really not the first thing on my agenda. I don't think of the couple as the be-all and the end-all of, of social formations. I know it's ironic since I just explained to you that I got married last year. <laughs> but the reason why um, that hasn't happened before my middle age um, is a real suspicion of the fetishism of the couple. In fact, I'm, I'm working on some work on, I think I told you about this, the, um, the celebrity couple. And I'm working on not the romantic couple, but the filial couple, so parents and children. And I'm sort of arguing that they represent a kind of queer, a queer way of, a, a queer couple, because they're not um, sort of upholding the romantic, heteronormative structure that the celebrity That may go. That, that may develop into a book on um, dynastic celebrity, which I'm kind of interested in thinking about. Celebrity dynasties that have a kind of political economy. Rosemary, Nick, and George. Exactly the Queenies. You have um, the Barrymores. You have the Fondas. You have these kind of Hollywood, the Carradines. And I, and I am just beginning to think about this, so I don't have lots of fixed definitions. Um, but just as an example of the filial couple work I'm doing, I was looking at Ryan and Tatum O'Neill, mm. sort of offshoot of the Barry Lyndon project. Mm. Because, in fact, the interesting thing about those two, he was a star before her, but their, star, their stardom became fused. It's only a paper moon. Exactly, after paper moon. And Wonderful. Yeah. Oh no, it's a fantastic 
and very, very his his star persona is also very strange and not much discussed. So I've sort of been been interested there. I mean, he is the feminist man. If you go back to the seventies, he stars in all of these films with strong women who are in charge, and he's sort of What's up, soft Doc? and passive. What's up, Doc? Love story. Um, the ones who were in with Barbara Streisand. I mean, it's really interesting. Um, whether or not that's, you know, we all know different and things. And he carries this on in the 21st century by gun battles with his sons. Well, I was going to say, we all know he's this <laughs> Irish hothead, right? Um, Peyton Place actually, I think, discloses all. <laughs> it's really well, all there. He is very, he's, he's such a wasp, um, you know, scion there. Rodney Harrington, I think, is his name or something like that. He's, yeah, it's quite, and, and yeah, Mia Farrow. Could you imagine the two of them and their family sagas? But at any rate, the... The dynastic celebrity right. is really interesting to me because I think um, it's about um, how we see ourselves generationally. Because right. we think of there being parents and children yeah. in these celebrity dynasties. Yeah. But it's also about the acquisition of capital. Mm. Because you start off as the child of a star and you become a star. I mean, obviously. George Clooney, a child star. Um, now, we've only got a couple of minutes yeah. left. I'd love to direct you. Towards the textbook okay. for a moment, because in amongst these intellectual pursuits, this is also an intellectual and original pursuit, but not often understood as such. You, you, and your co-author are currently, as I understand it, revising the book for the for a fourth edition. That's right. What's the book, and what's it like writing a textbook as opposed to an auteur study or a national cinema comparison study, or editing a bisexual reader? So the book is Film, A Critical Introduction, and um, my co-author is Tom Wallace. We are, as you said, preparing the fourth edition. And I'll be honest, the, the impetus for the project was that Tom and I both taught introduction to film and were less than happy with the books that were available to us. They all had strong points but they didn't quite do what we thought um, should, should be done in an introductory class. And so our, our main um, ideas at the beginning mm. were to create a book with enough examples that those who were reading it would understand the, whether it was a historical or a theoretical point being made um, without having a laundry list of titles they would never see, or very, very obscure films that are the favorite of, of you know, cineasts like us or whatever, mm -hmm. um, but that really aren't going to be um, compelling to, to students that are in an intro to film class that may not be film majors. And so that was one, um, one aspect of it. And the other was to integrate writing practice writing instruction throughout the book. So each chapter mm. would have different modes of writing about film um, and examples and sort of structures for students and instructors to use um, to, to help develop writing from informal to more um, scholarly writing is not mm. the only, you know, the be all and the end all, but that's, that's mm. considered in there too. And argumentation and how arguments are constructed. So we'll reprint um, work and show how the argument um, is constructed, um, what assumptions are made, those kinds of things, and sort of set the bar. So it was really um, satisfying to do that. It was a major undertaking, and it was um, 
a little bit scary because when you say you're writing a textbook, you're really assuming a position of authorship that um, is quite um, lofty. I mean, you're, you're, you're saying, I know enough about all of this to distill this and present it to you. Um, you're getting everything you need to know here. And I so it's really Pramajori, Pramajori, the Olympian view. That's the, or Pramajori and <laughs> yeah. Wallace. Yeah, the Vesuvian view might be more <laughs> like it. Yeah, the volcanic eruption. But um, what I think we did that I didn't realize until after the fact, when we started getting some feedback on the book, I mean, we did our homework and we did research the way you would do it if you mm. were writing a monograph mm. or mm. an Article. I mean, we didn't just sort of say, well, there was Edward Moybridge and he took these pictures of horses for Leland Stanford. I mean, we went to the scholarly sources and we, mm -hmm. we tried to make um, reference to that mm -hmm. as much as possible. And that's something that we got feedback on that was very much appreciated that it wasn't, um, we weren't sort of, um, you know, throwing out the narrative of film from time immemorial, but that we were drawing on contemporary research. We talk about queer studies, we talk about disability studies, we, you know, the things that are, that are happening. I would say the one field that's probably gotten short shrift, and that's my, my limitations, is cognitive film theory, cognitive film studies. It's something I, I just never really fully invested in or grasped, and I don't it's, think I could represent it to somebody else very It's well only practiced really by people who've never shaved their faces and are white turning to red with rage whenever their will is not done. Well, that's probably the reason why, the unspoken reason why I never um, fully got on that train. I have to say, I have, I, like, I, you know, I like film theory from the 70s and the 80s. I'm not afraid to you know, use a psychoanalytic term or talk about Christian Metz, I think the historical turn has been incredibly important. But, you know, I'm not, you know, an archive whore either. I don't think that's, you know, the answer to everything is you mm. go to an archive because we know we'll find the object or something. I think there's been a, a sort of excess in that direction. I've worked in archives. I worked in archives for, for Barry Lyndon Project. And it's extremely useful, but there seemed to be a, you know, I'm, no, I'm not saying anything backlash against theory that somehow this materiality that we know is really real, this kind of positivist view of the archive has been a limitation. Sure, and in cognitive film theory, the unacknowledged presence of neoliberal, neoclassical economic ideas of rational actors as yeah. those who properly understand the narrative mm -hmm. drive of the film in a way of smuggling it back in a very conventional formalist analysis That's under right. the sign right. of something. In any event, Aria, thank you with, with, with that uh, mini rant on my part. Thank you so much for entering the pod. This has been it's delightful. Really I feel like I just blathered on about myself forever. So Well, um, I tried to make it more about me, but you <laughs> no, did occasionally you resist. That was great. And I hope that you'll come back into the pod soon and share with us some of your other thoughts. Thank you. Thanks.